invite you to open up to our scripture passage today. We're continuing on in the book of Exodus. And today we're looking at Exodus uh, chapter 7, starting in verse 8 and going through verse 24. So Exodus 7, 8 through 24. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to you. Let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask uh, you would speak to us. Uh, Every one of us, uh, Lord, we start off in this life with a hard heart. And we pray that your word would soften it and that we would be nourished by your grace into life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite parts about flying is uh, when you pull onto the runway and the pilot pushes forward the throttle and you're pressed back into the seat, right? And there's this sense of all of that power. So take a Boeing 777, which is my favorite airplane. I remember when it first came out in the 90s and each one of those big turbofans spins at several thousand RPM and out each one of those engines comes over 100,000 horsepower. It is four times the power of the Titanic at a tiny fraction of the size. One of my dreams would be some way to, someday to stand in the, or sit in the cockpit of a jet engine, right, and just push that throttle and feel all that power at your fingertips. 
But the question is, well, where is the power? Right? Is it in the pilot? No, not really, right? There's no way, you know, maybe the best of athletes can manage a little over a horsepower for a bit. Right? The, the power is in the fuel, in the engine. And the pilot's hand is the catalyst for it, right? That little push of the throttle is multiplied thousands upon thousands of time to shoot out 200,000 horsepower. Now, there's several limitations to this analogy, but I think that's a helpful image as we dive into the 10 plagues here. See, last week we looked at Moses is asking this question, why in the world would Pharaoh listen to me? Who am I that I would go before him? And the obvious answer is, well, you know, if you're alone, there's no point. But if your hand is on the throttle, Moses, Pharaoh's going to pay attention. Right? If not, you're going to be as effective as a mouse confronting a serpent. And we also find ourselves facing huge, heartbreaking situations, and sometimes it feels helpless to fix them. And you wonder, where would I even begin, right? I'm as effective about fixing this situation as someone would be jumping out of their car and pushing it to church. Some of us, though, we're stubborn, so we still try, right? Well, I'm going to get behind that airliner's four and a half foot tires, and I'm going to push with all my might. Others of us, when we face those situations... We just give up. What's the point? I can't do anything. It's hopeless. But we've forgotten the throttle, which brings a power beyond what you ask or imagine. Now, this doesn't mean that God just kind of gives you the keys and say, have fun, right? No, you can't just point the aircraft wherever you want. You can't just use it for your own means. But one of the lines that's repeated in our passage today is that Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord has commanded. And that is the key here. God's power is shown through faithfulness. God's power is shown through faithfulness. And that's what I want us to remember. And we're going to look at just two points. First, uh, Moses and Aaron's faithfulness, and then Pharaoh's heart. So Moses' faithfulness, Pharaoh's heart. We have here kind of two scenes of confrontation between Moses, or really Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, and Pharaoh. And what we see here in these plagues are kind of like two animals facing off, right? If, if you, you've seen movies about these things, right? Two wild beasts that are kind of stomping around, facing each other, charging each other, trying to look as big as they can, trying to get one animal to back down before a full-blown fight. And that is what is happening here. It is a face-off between God and Pharaoh, and God is continually doing these things to try to get Pharaoh to back down before he has to go all the way into a full-blown fight. And we see this cycle that will repeat itself in our passage and later on. God speaks to Moses and Aaron, telling them what to do and what will happen. And then Pharaoh, or sorry, then Moses and Aaron go and do what God told them to do. And then Pharaoh reacts in one way or the other. So the Lord first tells Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh tells to you, perform a miracle, right? He's saying, Pharaoh's going to ask you, who are you that I should listen to you, right? Little puny Moses, why should I care what you have to say? Can you back up your words? So God tells Moses and Aaron, sorry, God tells Moses to tell Aaron. And remember that little detail that Aaron here is like Moses' prophet, his spokesperson. And so tell Aaron to throw his staff on the ground and it will become a snake, and this is kind of a repeat of the sign that God gave Moses back in chapter 4, but this time Aaron is doing it. And then in verse 10 it says, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. 
Here's this refrain, which we see over and over. It's this key verse. It's the throttle that unleashes God's power. Now, Pharaoh sees this, and he's probably a little bit surprised. Whoa, but he's not worried, right? He thinks, ha, they chose the wrong sign, right? I am the Cobra King. And so he summons his wise men, and, and they do the same thing. Right? Now, what is happening here with these miraculous signs, it can make us a bit uncomfortable, because I don't I doubt any one of you have ever seen a staff turned into a snake, right? unless it was at like some magician show. But I would encourage you to go back to the sermon from Exodus 4, 1 to 17, where I talk more about how we understand the miracles in Exodus. But remember that miracles are simply what we could call when God tweaks the code that he uses to normally run the universe, right? He just inserts in a few lines to do a, you know, something different from what he, how he normally runs the universe. But what I want to draw your attention to is the difference between how Aaron does it and how the magicians do it. Aaron simply throws his staff on the ground. He doesn't speak any incantations, but it's almost like he just lets go of that staff so it can go and do what it's made to do, become a snake. And then contrast that with the Egyptians, the court magicians. They do the same thing, but the text says, with their secret arts. Now, this could be some sort of sleight of hand. And some have wondered if, if the magicians could somehow induce snakes into a trance and they would go stiff, and then the shock of being thrown on the ground, would, you know, they would wake up. Maybe the secret arts were harnessing actual demonic powers. We don't know exactly what it is. But the key the text shows us is the difference in how these miraculous signs are performed. Right? One is effortless, just throw the staff. Right? It's like opening up a valve to let a bit of God's power out while the other requires conjuring up just enough energy to try to make this thing happen. Right? One is power con condescending down, the other one is trying to build up enough power in order to make the miracle. But Pharaoh's happy enough with that, right? Well, you got one snake, look, I've got six, or how many ever there were. But then if we can picture the situation, something happens, right? Now there's this face-off between, you know, six verse one. Pharaoh thinks this is gonna be fun, but then all of a sudden, Aaron's snake eats one of Pharaoh's snakes. And you can imagine his heart elevates and he grips his throne a little bit harder. And then Aaron's snake eats another one and another one. And you see his temple starting to pulse. And at this point, you got to imagine, I mean, you've all seen like when a snake eats something, you can see the bulge, right? Like this snake has to look like an overstuffed sausage at this point, right? I mean, how big is it? And Pharaoh is probably shaking red with anger of what's going on here. And, and why is this the first sign? Why a snake of all things? Well, one of the things that we'll see is that the signs and the plagues are not just random tricks, but are targeted at undermining the very things that the Egyptians and Pharaoh placed his confidence in. Right? It's to beat them at their own game. We can figure out the snake. Just think, what is the image that we think of with Pharaoh? Right? What does his headdress look like? What is his crown? What is it? It looks like a cobra, right? He's a cobra king. But then the cobra king just had all his snakes eaten by this no-name Hebrew. And it's this huge upset, right? It's like you guys have probably seen the, that movie uh, Miracle, right? Where the 1981 ragtag group of Americans beat the Soviets in the Olympics, right? And no one saw it coming, right? That's the type of upset we have here, right? This is Pharaoh should not lose at a snake competition. So round one is over. Yahweh has the advantage. And then the next miracle, which is often considered the first of the ten plagues, we see this very same cycle play out. 
Yahweh tells Moses, go to Pharaoh in the morning when he's down by the river and let him know that because he's not listening, I've got to do something else. Strike the Nile and we'll turn to blood. The fish will die, it'll stink, and no one's going to have water to drink. And then there's a second act of this miracle, right? It's kind of like a, a one-two punch, right? Moses gives the first jab and then Aaron's going to back it up with a more powerful punch where then he's gonna, Aaron's going to take his staff and stretch it over all the streams and the canals and the ponds and other bodies of water so that they too will be turned to blood. Blood will be everywhere. Verse 20, we see that key phrase again. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord has commanded. Faithfulness is like the throttle to God's power. It unleashes it, and the water is changed to blood. Now, the, the Hebrew word for blood can either refer to the substance itself, but also the color of it. And, it, and people have sometimes sought to find a natural explanation for this miracle. There are times when the water of, waters of the Nile turn a shade of red from clay runoff. That's possible. It could have just been a bad year for that. It could have been miraculous. Whatever it was, it stank, only made worse by piles of rotting fish on the riverbank. And don't miss the imagery here. The Egyptians saw the Nile as the source of their life. It was their power, and it had just been turned into a river of death. It was almost like God was uncovering the blood of all of those babies that had been thrown into the Nile, and now he's showing what really takes place there, and their blood is crying out. But now it's Pharaoh's turn, and his magicians come and they do the same thing by their secret arts. Now, probably one of the first questions that come to mind is, well, where did they get clean water to turn into blood? Right back at the end of verse 19, it says, even the vessels of wood and stone had blood, uh, water turned to blood. Which almost implies when this miracle took place, like you're drinking, imagine this, you're drinking this nice cup of cool water that you got from the river that morning, and then your next sip, suddenly it's this putrid, sticky substance, and you spit it out, and it's blood red, right? That might not be what happened, though. It's possible that the magicians got water from digging new wells to access clean groundwater, which was there. It's also possible, though, that not all of the water was polluted, specifically the water stored in those pots and jars. So in verse 19, uh, the word vessel, which is in many of our translations, actually isn't in the original Hebrew. It just says, and in the trees and stone. It's this very vague reference that people are trying to figure out, what does this mean? And so most translators are trying to clarify it for us, and they supply the word vessel in there, but it's not actually in the original. And one commentator thinks because of the parallelism with the preceding clause, that perhaps this was kind of a euphemism or an expression for, for saying blood was everywhere, and it just doesn't translate very well into English. Like, we say it's raining cats and dogs, right? Makes sense to us. Translate that into Chinese, and you'll probably get a bunch of confused looks, right? It, it doesn't make sense when translated, if you don't understand the slang. Now, what's more important, though, is how the Egyptians respond. Now, a great response to this miracle would have been for Pharaoh to bring his magicians and then go turn the Nile waters back into nice, clean water for everyone to enjoy. Right? That would have been a useful miracle. But they don't do that. Presumably, they couldn't do that. Instead, what they do is they take some good water, <laughs> which is kind of in scarce supply right now, like you might want to save the good water, and then also turn it into blood, which does no one any good except to appease Pharaoh's ego. So we can say, well, my guys did that too. 
And this leads us then to our second point, Pharaoh's heart. God's power is displayed through faithfulness. And now we read our passage and we're kind of drawn to the cool stuff, the, the miraculous signs. But as I studied this passage, I was struck by this distinction between the miraculous signs and the actions and then the words. Right, so notice this, Moses, when does Moses speak? He doesn't speak to the staff. He doesn't give an incantation to the Nile to tell it to turn to blood. Instead, it's more like, hey, hey, Pharaoh, watch this. I'm going to open up this can of God's power and watch what happens. That was part of faithfulness. But we can't miss Moses' words. The other part of his faithfulness was speaking those words to Pharaoh. Moses wouldn't have been faithful if he just had done some cool miracles but not actually spoken. And where was God's power displayed in those words? Well, we see God's power, not the way we might initially expect. We see God's power in Pharaoh's reaction to those words. His heart is hardened. In response to both of these showdowns, the text tells us the same thing. Pharaoh's heart became hard. Now, one of the continual discussions about Exodus is like, well, did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden his heart? And Scripture says both. So in verse 14 of our passage, God says Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Sounds like it's Pharaoh's fault. But then earlier, like in chapter 421, God says, but I will harden his heart. So which is it? Now, people have tried to come up with all sorts of explanations. I think probably one of the most important things for us to understand is what we have here is something that's like two icebergs floating in the ocean that look like they're 400 feet apart, right? And we cannot reconcile them. But below the waterline, where 90% of that iceberg is located, you can see how they fit together. But all we can see is what's above the surface, and they look like they're separate, right? These things aren't the same. Now, in the same way, like if a five-year-old doesn't understand something, does that mean it can't be true? Right? If any of you have had five-year-olds, you know, you'd know all the time. Sometimes you just have to tell them, stop asking me a million questions and just trust me on this. And one day you'll understand. And so if the distance between a five-year-old and an adult or a parent is, you know, this much in understanding, and there's still so many things that they have to just trust mom or dad on, imagine how much more there is that we have to trust God on when the distance between God and us is, you know, not even this, it's actually an infinite distance. And so it shouldn't surprise or bother us when we see these things that are maybe tough to reconcile. And frankly, who really wants to worship a God that you can figure everything out about him? Right? He is beyond us. That is why he is worth our worship. But one of the things that we can say that is at play here is that the human heart isn't a blank slate, but it's always tilted. It's like a poorly loaded cargo ship listing to one side. And our hearts are always tilted towards sin, naturally. Our hearts are always tilted towards ourself. We see this in the first sin of Adam, which at its root was this promise that you can be like God instead of submitting to God. And this tilting of our heart, it's often called ego or pride, and it shows up in all kinds of things. We see it at play here. Ego is Pharaoh's downfall. He's got to match every miracle that Moses and Aaron do. He's got to call up his guys, well, look, I can do it too. And when all the waters turn to blood, he tells his people, hey, go find more water so that I can show them I can turn water to blood too. Well, there goes our last gallon of clean water. But he's not bothered by that. 
He doesn't care that he's oppressing, you know, running his people into the ground. Everyone around him is going to suffer so that he can maintain his power, his image, his ego. And now as we apply this into our own life, I think there's kind of two avenues we've got to consider. The first is, how have you reacted to God's presence in your own life? Maybe I could put it this way. How have you reacted to God's grace in your own life? Has it hardened your heart or softened it? Now, grace takes a lot of forms. That's what I want us to draw out here. Sometimes grace feels like a plague. It confronts you with what you take most pride in. It undermines you at your own game, all to warn you to wake you up. This is the path you're headed down right now. How is your heart reacted to the various forms of God's grace? You know, there's a certain type of grace that we want from God where we know we're messed up. There's another grace that is so hard to swallow because it confronts us at the things we take most pride in and we react against that grace. No, God, I don't want that type of grace. How does your heart react when God's grace breaks in to show that you need Him at the very places you don't want Him? How do you know if you have a hard heart? It's how you react to God breaking in. And God uses all kinds of things to get our attention from natural disasters, earthquakes, miraculous signs, accidents, shakeups, even to the most ordinary of things. And does that lead you towards repentance or anger? Well, let me see what I can do. And how do you react when one of your own failures is pointed out? When light is shined into your sin? Herman Bovink has this great section on a hard heart in uh, the wonderful works of God, he says, the grace of God can humble a man, even if only in a temporary way, but a man can also in the long run set himself against such grace. In that case, the awful manifestation, which in the scripture is called hardening of the heart, sets in. Pharaoh is the typical example. He was a powerful prince standing at the head of a great kingdom, proud at heart and unwilling to bow before the signs of God's power. And those signs increased in miraculous power and force, and Pharaoh only increased in his evil and obstinance. And finally, with eyes wide open to the facts, he strode straight into his doom. That's where it leads. And people don't reject God because they don't have enough facts, because they reject God because they don't want to submit all of their life to him. They don't want to step off the throne. And every single one of us from birth start off like a mini Pharaoh. And what we need is God to break in to our hearts, to rearrange the cargo, to set our hearts aright, to free us from this addiction to ourselves. God's power is displayed in faithfulness. But what about when you fail? Like when you're faithless, Thankfully, Jesus' faithfulness always precedes yours. Jesus was faithful when you weren't. I think of it in light of this story. The Israelites reaped the benefit of Moses' faithfulness, right? The Israelites are just kind of off doing their own thing. Sometimes they're mad at Moses for getting them into all this trouble. But Moses' faithfulness brings about the salvation of those people. And in the same way, Jesus' faithfulness brings about your salvation, even in your failures. 
He's your champion. He's the one who is always faithful, even unto death on a cross. And he offers to give you his faithfulness so that even in your unfaithfulness, you would have the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, that's what we celebrate here at the table. Eat and drink of Christ's faithfulness. He offers himself to you. And he doesn't offer himself just in those areas where you think you need help. He offers himself in the areas that you might even be blind to the depths of your own sin. And he loves you and he wants to feed you. And he offers himself to you, not because of how hard you are trying in this life, but precisely because of how much you are failing time and time again. And only he can set you free. And so when he gives himself to you, he gives himself wholly to you. He gives you his Holy Spirit so that now his faithfulness becomes the fuel of your life. And now your little acts of faithfulness are actually displays of his power through you into a world that so desperately needs it. And from an earthly perspective, Moses and Aaron are outmatched. They're outgunned. Like Pharaoh is the most powerful king right now. I mean, what could they do? But their power is in that God is with them. And God's power is manifest through their simple actions. Showing up, doing as the Lord commanded. Brothers and sisters, simple acts of faithfulness are some of the most powerful things that you can do. And Moses and Aaron, they don't know how this is going to play out. They know some general contours. God's going to multiply his wonders. Pharaoh's heart's going to get hardened. But they don't know how rocky of a ride it's actually going to be between when God said, I'm going to save the people, and they cross that Nile or sorry, the, uh, the, across the Red Sea. But they are called not to figure out all those details, but to wake up that morning, what does God want me to do today? What does faithfulness look like in this moment? And that's what God is calling to each of you today as well. Faithfulness, one day at a time. But we're frozen so often, right? Because the problem is way too big, what can I do? So I just sit there and do nothing. You're worried about all the things that could go wrong if you do this thing. But isn't that the exact situation Moses and Aaron find themselves in? They're faithful and it doesn't bring immediate results, or at least the results results they're wanting. Isn't that how we often feel? Okay, God, I'm going to be faithful here, and I did that thing now. It's like five minutes later. Aren't you doing your thing now? No, sometimes faithfulness makes life harder for them. Faithfulness sometimes makes life harder for the Israelites. But Moses and Aaron keep showing up day after day and do these little acts of faithfulness, trusting that God is actually guiding them and going to work out all the little details so that he will bring them to where he said that he would, even if it's not the path that they thought. And so are you trying to live through your own power or God's? And are you always, in every situation of life, trying to manage the situation, trying to get control of it, trying to direct the outcomes? Or are you just doing nothing about these situations because you're like, well, what could I do? It's hopeless. God doesn't ask you to fix screwed up situations. He doesn't ask you to heal people that are broken. He simply asks you to be faithful today and let his power work through you and others and you watch what happens. The problems in our world, in our communities, in our families... They're as big as that huge Boeing 777, and you look at that thing, how in the world could I move that thing? 
It's impossible. And some of us are just stubborn and we're like, okay, well, I'll start pushing behind this four and a half foot tall tire, right? And, and you're pushing and you're sweating and you wonder why you're so irritable all the time. Maybe it's because you're trying to work out of your power. But God's given you keys to the cockpit, his Holy Spirit in you. He's given you his word, which shows you where the throttle is and where to point the nose. And those little acts of faithfulness, three pounds of pressure, Resolve in 200,000 pounds of thrust out those engines. God's power is shown through little acts of faithfulness. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us in this. Uh, because all of us, one way or the other, we are trying to manage situations that quickly get out of control. And we get angry or irritable. Others of us, we've just given up. And we don't care anymore. We're doing nothing. Father, help us to see that through trusting you in these little acts of faithfulness, you do amazing work. And help us to rest in knowing that Jesus was faithful even when we're not. And that his power, your power, is unleashed in us through him. Amen.